listening now for our scripture text this morning. Our sermon scripture reading comes out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Luke 14, 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose someone to a wedding feast. Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for hearts that love you, that yearn for your voice, that are truly able to hear what it is you want to speak to us. Help us know that you are the God who has spoken, who continues to speak. Jesus, may you take the words that I say that are very limited and, and, and weak and, and frail, may they become your words. May they encourage those who are discouraged. They build up those who are weak. They confront those who are self-satisfied. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. When I was growing up, um, my youth group at my church was a big part of my spiritual development. And every year we'd have a winter retreat if you grew up in kind of a youth group environment, you probably had this too, but it would be like a Friday to Sunday event, and you'd go to some camp somewhere, and I, I went to a big youth group, about 300 students. There'd be games, and, and it'd be tons of fun. It'd also be really spiritually significant as well. Um, but I remember this one year, the worship band had probably the best electric guitarist I'd ever seen in my life, and still probably the best electric, electric guitarist I have seen live. Um, I played guitar since I was 10. I was never great, but I, I at least could recognize greatness in other people, and this guy was just in another world of his own. Um, and not only was he an incredibly gifted musician, so when you're an electric guitarist, like, you look at his, his electric guitar, and then you look at their amp. Those are the two important things. And I remember looking at his amp, and I was like, I've never seen that brand. Like, I, I'll spend hours at Musician's Friend, like, playing all the expensive amps that I'll never be able to afford, but I've n I don't know what this is. And he had literally designed and built his own guitar amp. Um, so he just, he didn't know, it wasn't only that he was a good guitarist, he like understood music and technology, and I have this memory, though, of, of sometime during the weekend, and the band is, is kind of hanging out in between sessions, and they look so cool, I'm a 17-year-old, they just look like rock stars, um, and they're all kind of dressed the part, I mean, the band itself, they're all very gifted in their own right, um, but they looked like musicians, they looked like creatives, except for this guitar player, who, no offense to my computer people, looked like a computer science major. And I'm not talking about Mark Zuckerberg, like social network computer science. I mean like 1980s Bill Gates, right? Like he's wearing his like big baggy shirt and cargo pants, but my cargo pants were not cool anymore. And his hair looked like it was from Saved by the Bell. I mean, just like, it was like, he did not look like a musician. And it was just a very ironic moment of, man, 
The one guy who's honestly more gifted than the entire band combined looks, looks least the part. Like, he's the last guy you'd expect to be able to stand up and play guitar the way he did. It's a reversal of expectations. Now, Jesus, similarly, was not the most Messiah-looking figure. Um, people often did not see him and think, ah, there goes the Messiah we wanted, that we expected. Um, but even beyond his appearance, what he taught was also not what was, what was expected from the Messiah. He would use these reversals of, of, of who God is and what he expects of us and what Jesus' kingdom is coming to do that would, that would take expectations and reverse them. And we're looking at one of those great reversals in our text this morning. And we'll see what it teaches us about God and, and what he wants of us. So the outline for this morning is going to be, first, a reversal that makes sense. Second, a reversal that does not make sense. And then third, a kingdom of reversals. I want to I situate us again in the context of Luke. So I've, I mentioned that chapters 11 to 14, which is this section we've been looking at, part of what Luke is drawing out is this growing opposition to Jesus. From the beginning, you know, the, the, the religious leaders were kind of ambivalent about Jesus. They recognized that he was a teacher, and so they're like, you're, you're, you're kind of like us. But then he would hang out with sinners, and he would, like, forgive sins. And so there's always some just ambivalence of we don't really know what we think about you. And then if you remember when Jesus gives his seven woes, we're just no, you know, he's not holding any punches, just lays it out for the Pharisees. It's kind of a turning point for the religious leaders, for the official Judaism of the day. And at that point, the hostility begins to grow and grow and grow until finally they crucify him. And one of the things, again, that Luke is trying to answer is Luke is writing 40 years after Jesus has been resurrected and gone back into heaven. And at that, by that point, the nation of Israel had completely rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. How did the Jewish nation completely reject their own Messiah? How did that happen? And that's one of the things that Luke is drawing out, is, well, the nation followed their leaders, and their leaders rejected Jesus. And, it, you know, and, and this is kind of a side note to our text, but leadership really does matter. Um, and one of my hopes for me as a pastor here, as part of the leadership of this church, is that I lead us, that I lead us towards Christ, and I lead us well. And I know many of you pray for me, and, and I'm so thankful. And if you don't pray for me, please do because I need it, <laughs> um, and leadership really does matter. But anyway, so that's what so we're looking at here in, in the kind of context of where we're in Luke. But focusing on our text here, now we're looking at verses 7 to 11, but actually the story begins in verse 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to be following along. It's one of the best ways to follow along. But verse 1 of chapter 14 says, One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, so, so this is the context. Jesus is invited to the house. He's, he's a ruler of the Pharisees. We don't know exactly what that means, but he was a prominent leader. That's the point. And he's invited to dine with him at the Sabbath day meal. That would have been a prominent weekly meal if you were a Jew. So some of you maybe remember the times when like the Sunday lunch was the big meal, especially if you were a church-going person. You would go to church, and then you'd have a big meal, and maybe you had friends and family. And, and if you're Jenny Abersall, you still do that, which is awesome. Um, but that was like, you know, it, it, that was a widespread cultural event more so previously. Well, that was a Sabbath day meal. That was a significant meal if you were a Jew. And they invite Jesus to this meal. Now, what's clear, though, is that this is not just an open-handed invitation to hospitality, but it goes on to say, he's invited to this meal, and they were watching him carefully. And the idea behind that is a sense of lurking. They're waiting for Jesus to say something that they can confront him on, that they can use to discredit him, to criticize him with. So this is not a fully upfront 
invitation. Again, we're seeing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders here, pretending to be hospitable, but they're really just trying to get Jesus. Now, here's something we have to note before we move on again to our text, is that Jesus, Jesus went and ate with Pharisees. This is, again, after Jesus has, like, laid the seven woes. He's, he's, you know, he's laid out what he thinks of them, of their hypocrisy, of their self-righteousness, of their hardness of heart, but yet he is willing to still go and engage with them. And I mentioned last week, I think it was, the difference between Jesus and cancel culture. It's kind of a prominent phenomenon uh, today. But cancel culture is, 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 has a similar attempt, which is to hold power accountable. That's part of the desire of of cancel culture, but the goal is to cancel the person. Whereas the goal of Jesus was never to cancel the Pharisees, it was to bring them to repentance. So they might repent and be forgiven of their sins. And so even though Jesus doesn't hold any punches, he continues to engage with them. It's a lot easier to condemn those we disagree with and walk away. I'm done. I'm cutting you off. It's much easier than speaking truth to power like we should, but yet remaining and working towards reconciliation. And it's funny, Jesus never gives up on the Pharisees. They're the ones who kill him. Till the end, he's willing to engage with them. It's a worthwhile observation of his example. Okay, so here we move into our, our text. So again, this is a Sabbath day meal. It's a, it's a prominent meal of the week. It's at a prominent leader's house. This would have been, you know, kind of one of those like swanky meals, which, you know, really good food and important people are there. And this is where we get to our text in verses 7 to 10. So follow along with me. Now it told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So in verse 1, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. Now the tables are turned, and Jesus is watching them. And what's obviously going on is there's some pretty obvious kind of jockeying for position, for social status. And the reason this is going on is is, is the, the world that Jesus lived in, the highest value is honor. That's why you, I mean, you live for honor. You would be willing to die for honor. And the way that honor was determined was social ranking. So the higher your social ranking, the more honor you deserved. Now, we don't live in an honor-shame culture. We can still understand honor, but it doesn't have quite the same existential weight for us. We don't, like, feel it in our, in our, in our, in our bones when we think about honor. But I think a helpful comparison would be how we think of freedom. Right? So the American experiment was begun out of desire for self-representation. We don't want to be governed by the Brits. We want to have our own self-determination. You know, we are the land of the free. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's probably the value that we as a culture hold most dear. And that's why issues or, 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 or controversies or debates over things like mask wearing, and sexuality and religious liberty are not just contentious but explosive because they're dealing with questions of personal autonomy, of freedom. Don't infringe on my freedom. Okay, this is how they felt about honor, okay? Just to give us an idea so we can feel that, the kind of existential weight behind it. And so here, you know, they're in a culture, honor is everything, and this even applies to seating arrangements around a table. Go and put up that slide. Um, 
even seating arrangements at a table would, would play into this honor matrix and social ranking. I know it's going to be really hard to see, and I'm, I'm going to explain it. But to give you an idea of, of what a, 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 a kind of ranking of a table would look like, so typically tables would be this kind of U shape here. At the bottom of the U, there would be a three-person couch. And that's where the host would sit. He's the most prominent member of this meal. At his left hand would be the most prominent guest. At his right hand would be the second most prominent guest. And then you move to their left, up the U, there'd be another three-person couch. And again, the middle person would be now the third most prominent guest, his left, the fourth, his right, the fifth. Now you move to the other side of the table, again, the, another three-person couch, and again, the middle would be the sixth most prominent, this, his left would be the seventh. This is like super intricate. That's how much they cared about this, and it was important. And so you walked in, and, 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 and here's kind of the, the, the scenario for you is, is, well, you want advance in ranking. You just like, you know, we want freedom. Well, they want honor. They want to be honored. But what if you take a seat that's above your ranking, and then all of a sudden the prominent guest comes in late, fashionably late, as they say, and you're sitting in their seat? What do you do with that? And as verse 9 shows us, if that happens, if you take someone's seat who comes who's actually more prominent than you, well, then the, the, the host is socially bound to go to you and say, hey, give your place to this person. They're going to be shamed if they allow their prominent guest to not receive their due honor and societal status. And Jesus kind of brings out the shame of what that will be like. You will then begin with shame to take the lowest place. Again, you're, you, you know, you're reclining at this table. Everyone's lying on the ground. And the host has to come up to you, tap you on the shoulder, I'm sorry, you're, you're in the wrong seat. But at this point, every seat has been taken except for the last seat. So now you have to stand up in view of everyone and, you know, the walk of shame to the end. I mean, you're publicly humiliated. That's the warning of what could happen. That's, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're quick to try to take the best seat possible. So what's the advice that Jesus gives? Okay, verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Jesus is saying, look, if you come and you take a lower seat, the worst that's going to happen is you'll stay there. And that's far, far better than being publicly shamed in front of the entire room as you're forced to take the lowest seat. But more likely than not, those rules of honor and shame, which would work against you if you're dishonored, might actually work in your favor because the host may say, whoa, I, my social etiquette requires me to actually move you up, and so I'm going to publicly honor you in front of all people. The idea here is it's better for others to recognize your worth than for you to try to tell people how great you are. It just works out better in the long run. Now, what's really interesting about this text, this is super practical. Um, and if it just stopped here, it would seem like Jesus is just giving kind of tips on interpersonal relationships. Course, we'll get to verse 11, we'll find that Jesus is dealing with things far more substantive than banquet etiquette. But we don't want to move on to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, giving really good advice here. It's very similar to Old Testament wisdom. Old Testament wisdom was not a matter of intelligence or a matter of capacity, it was a matter of character. And the way that wisdom, Old Testament wisdom began was with the fear of God. But other wisdom says things like Proverbs 11:2 that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Look, if you're, if you're gunning for that top spot, it's probably going to lead to some kind of disgrace for you. And that's why this point is called the reversal that makes sense. Because Jesus is making a reversal. He says, don't gun for that top seat. 
gun for something lower, and there's going to be a reversal. But that makes sense, because none of us like the guy who's like obviously, you know, completely selfishly ambitious. When Mark was in med school, uh, med school is such a weird thing. You're, um, the second two years, you're just rotating with doctors, uh, trying to get a sense of where you want to practice, but you're also trying to impress them, because they're going to write your recommendations. And so there's always the, what they call the gunner, who's the one who's just a little bit too eager to, like, impress. And it just annoys everybody, and it doesn't actually get you a good recommendation, because the doctor knows you don't actually care about them, you're just trying to impress them. We recognize, that's just common sense. If you're, like, putting yourself first, like, that's, gonna, that's not going to win friends and influence people. Take the, the title of the famous book by whatever that guy's name was. I mean, this makes sense. This is, like, common sense wisdom. And what Jesus is getting at is that God designed the world, and we see that design in the fact when we live according to ways that please him, it, it often turns out well. That's the whole point of wisdom. If you live a life that's marked by honesty, in the long run, that'll probably serve you better than a life marked by dishonesty. That's the whole point of all the Proverbs about living with honesty. Or, or if you live a life that's marked by discipline and hard work, it'll probably pay off better than living a life that's dissolute and lazy. We have all these Proverbs about that. And then we live in a fallen world, and so these are not promises. There are times when the rich are dissolute and lazy and the poor are hardworking and disciplined. But generally, these are the, this is the way life works. So we don't want to discount the actual, very real, practical wisdom that Jesus is getting here. But we also have to realize that this parable is about far more than interpersonal relationships. And we get that to verse 11. We come to our second point. So first, a reversal that makes sense, but the second point is a reversal that does not make sense. And this is verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So using a future tense, he's saying, look, and whoever exalts himself now in the kingdom of God, in God's eyes, that person's going to be humbled. But who humbles himself now will be exalted. What Jesus is saying is that humility is not like a social tool that we use when, it fits, when, when, it's, when it's beneficial for us and then lay aside when it's not. Like we use it when it can get us honored in front of other people. He's saying, no, 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 no. Actually, in the sight of God, what is in fact great is humility. And that doesn't make sense. Again, we understand, like, no one thinks blatant pride is a good thing. But authentic humility that is not self-serving, that is not something that we think of as great. It's not going to win you presidential elections. It's not going to win you um, Nobel Peace Prizes. What Jesus is saying is in the eyes of God, in the kingdom of God, what actually is great is in fact humility. And he who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And this applies first and foremost to our relationship with God. What matters most to God in our relationship with him is humility towards him. What does it mean to be humble towards God? It means that we relate to God in a way it's fitting to who he is and who we are. He is the creator. We are the created. He is the redeemer. We are the ones who need desperately need redemption. He is the father. We are the children. So when we relate in a way that makes sense of those realities, we're relating to God in a humble way. Now, we can continue to nuance that, but I think, frankly, we all understand what it means to be humble to God. We sense it intuitively. And we know when we're not being humble towards God. So a more important question is, how do, we, how do we grow in our genuine humility before God? If that's the most important thing to God, not our 
accolades and all the things that we tend to put value in, but it's our humility before him. How do we grow in that? And there's two truths we hold in balance, in tension. They're, they're truths in tension. We hold them in balance. And that's how we actually grow in humility. And the first truth that we have to have a hold in balance is the fact that we are, in fact, unworthy of God's love. We are not worthy of his love. Romans 3.23 says it pretty simply. We have all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. Romans 8.7, speaking about the non-Christian, the person who has not placed their faith in Jesus, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Before we turn to Christ, it's not that we're just neutral about God. We're hostile to him. We don't deserve his love. Another way to think about it, the Old Testament refers to spiritual compromise and unfaithfulness and compares it to marital infidelity, to adultery. How many times does a husband have to commit adultery before he's unworthy of his spouse's love? Well, I would say once. doesn't mean there cannot be redemption, but it'll be an act of grace on the wife to forgive her husband. Well, how many times have we been unfaithful to God? We're unworthy of his love. That's the first truth. We have to come up against and recognize that we're, just, we're not worthy to be loved by God. But the second truth that we have to hold in balance, that is that tension that must be held, is that yes, we aren't worthy of his love, but oh, he loves us. Oh, he pursues us into the darkest holes that we try to hide in. He's not satisfied to leave us to our own devices, to destroy ourselves, but he will come after us. There's a poet who called God the hound of heaven. He loves us. He delights in us. So as we hold these truths in tension, we are in fact sinner saints, deeply unworthy of God, but made beloved in his eyes. As we grow in this, this leads us to humility before God. And here's the thing, it also leads us to humility towards other people as well. When we hold these two truths in balance, that we are unworthy of God's love, but oh, he loves us. That gives us humility towards others. Why? Well, I know I'm unworthy of God's love, so I'm not puffing myself up, right? I'm not saying, man, I'm the cheese, I'm the big deal. Like, I know. I know I'm a spiritual adulterer, and so are you. At the same time, I'm also not caring what other people think, because God has honored me with his love. The one person whose opinion it matters has said, you are my child, and I die for you. So who cares what other people think? Let's take the lowest position. Because God's already spoken the word over us that matters. And so humility before God as we balance these truths and tension leads also towards humility towards others. Genuine humility. Not self-serving humility, but genuine humility. I'm willing to take the lowest spot because I don't care. Because God has spoken over me. This is the great reversal of the kingdom of God. That it's not the mighty and impressive, it's not the powerful, it's not the smart, it's not the successful, but it's the humble who are great. That's the reversal that doesn't make sense. Now here's the thing, is, is in the section we're looking at, this is not the only reversal that Jesus focuses on. I've mentioned one of the themes of this section is a growing opposition towards Jesus from specifically the religious leaders, the kind of official Judaism of the day, but another big theme is this theme of reversals that God's kingdom brings reversals of our expectations of what the kingdom should be about, of what God should be like. And this is just one of them. So let me give you an example. In chapter 13, 
In verses 18 to 21, God, or sorry, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. A mustard seed would have been a very, very small seed. But a mustard seed would grow into a plant that was over 10 feet tall. So you think of, you know, Joe's garden. 10 feet is probably the tallest thing in that garden. What started so small becomes something that is actually giving shade to the rest of the garden that's providing places for birds to nest. So the kingdom of God similarly would start in a backwaters province of the Roman Empire and would eventually grow to the point where here we are in America, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, and we are worshiping this King Jesus. Similarly, faith starts with the smallest of faith of turning to Jesus. I know I'm unworthy, but I know that you've made a, a way for me to know you through your death. And that small declaration of faith begins to transform a life completely. The kingdom of God begins not with press releases and launch parties and celebrity endorsements. It begins in insignificance, seemingly. And grows on to something great. That's one reversal. Another reversal in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 30. Behold, some are last will be first, and some are first will be last. And Jesus there is talking about how the, 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 the righteous Jews of the day, the devout Jews who seemed to be the ones who, who knew God, would actually be the ones who would miss the kingdom, who would be last if they made it at all, while the ones that they despise, the sinners, the prostitutes, thieves, the Gentiles, be the ones who would find the kingdom, who'd be first. And then, of course, lastly, this reversal in, here in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the big theme of the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches, that it will, be, it will involve all these reversals of what we expect should be the case. What's the purpose of these reversals? Like, is, it's not like Jesus is just, like, playing with us. Like, huh, this will get him. There's a purpose behind this. And the purpose behind these reversals is that Jesus is teaching us something basic about how the kingdom of God advances. And we see this in Zechariah verse, chapter 4, verse 6. And this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is spoken to Israel. They've come back out of exile. They're just a poor fragment of who they used to be. Zerubbabel is the priest. They don't have a king. And they're tasked to rebuild the temple. And they're surrounded by enemies. Like, I don't have, this, this is not going to happen. So God speaks to Zerubbabel and says, yeah, it won't happen by human might or by human power, but by my spirit. That's what these reversals are showing. The kingdom of God does not, uh, does not advance by human ingenuity, by human strategy, by human strength and charisma and power. It advances by God's spirit by his work, by his power alone. I'm convinced that every human longs for the kingdom of God. We wouldn't, probably many of us wouldn't say it that way. We may not even be religious in any way, but we long for the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? The kingdom of God is God's reign. It's life under his reign. Um, Micah 4.4 describes the kingdom of God this way. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. The kingdom of God is where injustice is ended. The fall is reversed. Obviously, we don't see that in fullness now. We wait for when Jesus returns, but it's already begun. The kingdom of God is children playing in the street without fear. 
It's communities where neighbors love one another. Where families are whole and flourishing. Where communities are marked by justice and righteousness. And every human longs for that. The problem is, is that we try to bring the kingdom and we reverse it. We say, ah, but it's by human power and human might and not by the Spirit of God. And so when you look through the history, all the various human attempts of trying to bring about the kingdom of God without God as the king and do it by human might and power, it leads to terrible ends. You think of the Soviet Union. Communism was a promise of human flourishing to a country that had big problems. I mean, there was gross inequality and horrendous poverty, and communism came and said, hey, we will, we will bring the kingdom of God. Of course, the result was gulags and one of the most horrendous abuses of human rights and violence in recent history. We could think of our current political system where both parties in one way or the other promise the kingdom of God. Republicans, of course, make America great is a, a promise we'll return to kind of America when it was great. The problem with that is in the 1950s, America was great if you're white, not so great if you're black, Latino, American, Japanese. If they could enact their kingdom of God, it would be a disaster. Similarly, the Democrats also paint a picture of the kingdom of God. They push us towards a liberal social order that would just oppress other people. If it wasn't good to be black in the 1950s, it's not good to be a child in the 2020s, where doctors are more and more not just permitted, but encouraged to prescribe puberty blockers to 10-year-olds, not because there's been some kind of scientific revolution or because there's even longitudinal studies showing that these things aren't horrendously devastating to people, but simply because of ideology, which was birthed in the safe place of elite academics and now is playing Russian roulette with the lives of our children. They both, they both promise the kingdom of God and they both get it wrong because they mix it up. They say, by human power and human might and not by the spirit of God. And if they could implement it, it would be disaster. But Jesus comes and he teaches the kingdom by reversal. That the kingdom will not come by human power, human might. It'll come by God's spirit. And of course, it'll come most by the greatest reversal of all, which was when the king of the universe died, not to conquer his enemies, but to save them. And the king of the universe humbled himself to come as a slave. And the king of the universe conquered sin and death, not by brute force or strength, not by power, but by sacrifice and love by giving up his own life for sinners like us. And so the way of the kingdom is not a way of power, it's not a way of prestige. The way to the kingdom is through humility. It's through the humility of repentance and faith, of acknowledging I am unworthy of God's love. Oh, I'm so unworthy. But oh, Christ has loved me still. And he died that I might know forgiveness and life. Though I'm unworthy, I'm beloved and redeemed. And I tell you what, that mustard seed, that mustard seed of faith will grow into a mountain. Let's pray. Jesus, we 